0: And I think part of the reason why I had so much anger was that I had created an unrealistic uh, but comfortable dream that because of what I had gone through, that somehow I was going to be cut kind a of slack by life, you know, at some point. But it, 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 it won't, you know, that there are, the future is still as uncertain and as full of potentials of beauty and ugly and pain for me as for anybody else. Welcome to The Good Life,
1: Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Nidale Nguyen was born in a refugee camp in Ethiopia and grew up in another refugee camp in Kenya. Uh, She came to Australia as an 18-year-old and has quickly become embroiled in the conversation over racism in Australia uh, and the, uh, the role of African Australians in building the nation. Uh, she's been a regular panellist on The Drum and Q&A, received a slew of awards, and is about to shift from being a commercial lawyer into heading the Zelman Cowan Centre at Victoria University. Uh, she is perhaps one of the youngest guests I've had on the Good Life podcast, and it's a real honour to be speaking with her today. Nadal, welcome to the Good Life podcast.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
1: So you're uh, the daughter of a very famous father, uh, Commander William Nyon Bani.
0: Tell us about him. Yeah, that's the strange part. I don't know much about him. So um, most of the stuff I know about my father, I heard secondhand. So because of the role he played in the South Sudanese and the Sudanese political um, uh, movements, uh, both military and as well as um uh sort of the more conventional politics he's he was always absent so i never got to see him saw him uh much, and i think i have only one recollection of ever interacting with him um so yeah i wouldn't say i know much of 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 him but I, there's quite a lot of history about what he was he has done he was a founding member of uh what what is called the SPLA SPLM which is um the South Sudanese People Liberation Movement um as well as army and um they started off with the idea of fighting um uh, uh against the government of Sudan at the time which was predominantly in the north and and that um with years of civil war ended up being um a fight to have an independent south and uh, that happened in 2011 i think where by referendum um the this country that was sudan split into two and um south sudan became independent and and so the the political the political movement as well as the political um uh, as well as the, the SPLA wing of it, then was transformed to a, the National Army, Army of South Sudan and the political wing became the political party, which is still currently in government.
1: And because of the, uh, the fighting, uh, your uh, mother and father uh, were, at the time of your birth, uh, living in Ethiopia in a refugee camp in Itang. Uh,
0: what do you remember about Ethiopia i don 't have a lot of memories of um, of itam, which is the refugee camp i was I was born in. Um, my mother was there, but i 'm not sure. i think my father visited um because at some point itam was was an army base of some sort as as well because it 's so closely <laughs> bordered south sudan um, but yeah but i i don 't have much memories the, the 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 core memory I, I have is is of um, being displaced from itang in about nineteen i think ninety one um, so I have snippets of memory of walking through very rainy and muddy fields as we walk back to S- Sudan after being displaced from from Ethiopia and um, and and also an incident of I, I recall my mother sort of. Crying at the top of her lungs because she had thought one of my my siblings t- has passed away, and so those were sort of the m- first memories I have of of Itang. Um, and then after that, I ended up in Kakuma refugee camp with with extended family members, and so, um, didn't get to see my my mother much until, I think I saw her, uh, once after nineteen ninety six when the news came in that my father was killed, and then uh, once more um in early ni- uh, late 90s and then i think um started living with her in the early 2000s and then that's when we um she she applied for resettlement to australia and um luckily very luckily we were resettled um through the humanitarian pro- uh, program here
1: uh, I want to ask you about the passing of your father uh, in a moment, but first of all, just paint us a picture of what life was like in uh, in Karkumar. It's uh, uh, the second biggest refugee camp in uh, in Kenya after Ddub. Uh What was what what was it like to to grow up there? Because you were there from from uh, uh, being just a, a four year old uh, all the way through until your late teenage years.
0: Yeah, I I spent most of my my childhood. So I started my primary school in Kakuma uh, at a school called Mundeng Primary School, um named after a very old Nuer prophet. Um and I, I I in fact I think recently I've been thinking more and more of wanting to go back and see Mundeng Primary School mm. and, and if it's still there. Um, and and I also did all of my my secondary studies, which is four years of of, of secondary studies in Kenya, in in Kakuma. So I I was in a way I, even in the midst of all that, in a sense, privileged because, um, you know, I, I did spend some time in Nairobi, the capital, because my father could afford to. And then when he got killed, uh, that that meant that the family had to relocate back to the camps. And um, so I mean, Kakuma was. It started off almost as nothing, really. You know, it's 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 located in a very very dry area of Kenya, um, or almost a semi desert, um, and um, uh, there there was no running water when I was there. Um, there's no electricity. Um, and so, uh, everything was sort of um russian i I remember we used to collect water clean water drinking water twice a day from from a central tap and and the fights that would occur on that purpose people just tried to get clean drinking waters for their families and and we had food russians um provided every fortnightly um and um, i think there was one main hospital for nearly eighty thousand people or, or or more um it was not rare to sort of hear that someone has gone to the hospital because of malaria and, and never come out or or a scorpion bite and so it was um it was it was a a a very tough place to be but i have to say it didn't feel as tough because i knew nothing else um in, in a way so I think it would be harder for me now if I had to go and live in Kakuma after I suppose 6 almost 16 17 years of being in Australia but at the time it was all I knew um it was it was all I knew and and I could also see even in that environment how privileged I was in the sense that even when my father was dead I I had a mother um some people had no parents you know I remember to seeing young boys that mom or dad weren't there trying to cook for themselves in extraordinary heat of Kakuma, you know. And I had a mom who was able to buy me at least you know one outfit every year for Christmas, and and sometimes she had enough money to you know to buy us um, meat to eat in our stew, and then which because the the UN never provided uh, meat or any of of vegetables, <laughs> you know, we only had lentils. So so I could see that the, the level of privilege I had, and I, I remember one time. Uh, mom buying me a bicycle so that I could I could ride to school because it took me about an hour or so just one way to get to school every day and 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 yeah so so in a way yes it was it was tough but I I also can see how uh, lucky and and privileged I was also by what I was able to access even in there
1: I think most of us have an uh, an image in our heads of a refugee camp as being a, a temporary place, but uh, as you say, Kakuma's become very established. It was, I think, a few thousand people uh, when you 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 began there. Uh, now it's tens of thousands of people, and uh, a whole range of established schools and so on. Uh, the the um, uh, the life for uh, for people in a in a camp like that, I guess, you know, can be can be more stable than we sometimes associate with a refugee refugee camp.
0: They can, they can, and I think they they can be more permanent than perhaps if they were internally displaced in their own homes. But they are definitely still very difficult lives, you know. But mm, mm. but I think I but I think what it what that says more and more is how long it's taking now for conflict to be resolved. Um, and and as a result, that we're producing more refugees than than people being able to return to their countries or be taken up on on the opportunity to be resettled to countries willing to take them. So, it, it is in some ways uh, there's a sad bit of it. The sad. I mean, I, I still find really sad when I think about some of my friends who are still in the camps or people that I knew that are still in the camp because I can see the massive difference between my life and theirs. Simply because of the lack of being located in Australia. Did you feel safe in Kakama? No, I, I, I. There was a consist consistent. I think that's one of the things that is quite prevalent in a camp. That was a consist consistent, unrelenting feeling of being in some sort of a threat. You know. Um, even just going to collect the water, because, for example, the tap water that we got um, was only, you know, a few jerricans, And so you you did not use it to, for example, wash your clothes or things like that. You, you save it up for drinking and for cooking or, or or more important stuff. And so you had to go to the local stream um, to sort of fetch water. And that kind of involved like digging into the sun as deep as you can until you sort of find water in the dry riverbeds and then, you know, fetch that water. But, you know, there's sometimes you go there and you'll be harassed by the local communities there and, you know, you know, risk of being sexually assaulted or even just risk of digging a, a hole deep enough and being buried in it um, by the sand. So, I mean, the risks were, were, were everywhere. And, and there was also the chance that, that just the hospital couldn't cope. If you get sick, the chances of dying were so so high and, and, and the food, the food was just not enough. <laughs> you know, it was just, um, I remember um, the last few days as you wait for that, um, uh, for that, the next ration were just so, so hard. And so um, in a way to make the food last longer, um, we would have um, this, um, I don't know what to call it actually. It's like this mixture of um, corn with maybe salt and and, and, and sugar um so that you could you know you have that as your lunch and then you could you know um have the lentils and something else in the evening so yeah it was uh, it 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 was a precarious life
1: and your father had multiple wives i understand for uh, much of your time in Kakuma, you weren't living with your mum but with uh, your one of your stepmothers
0: yeah, so culturally among the Nuer uh, a practice among the Nuer um and the Dinka is that you could uh, literally a man could marry as many wives as he, if he as he wants provided i suppose he had the status and and the money to do so um i mean gladly for me i think that's a practice that is um that is dying and i and i hope um will be completely dead at some point um but but that yeah that that meant that i i had um um A lot of steps uh siblings and a lot of stepmothers that were willing to look after me um for a long period of time um when my mum was not around yeah and and that's how I literally grew up. I grew up with a separate stepmother in Kenya and then another one in Kaukuma and then another one <laughs> so and I still have relationships with them you know i still I still know them, and some of them are some of my favorite people in the world
1: but not all of them treated you well did they?
0: no no um I, so i um I, I i i until quite recently i suppose quite quite recently I, i've never really thought about the level of uh of trauma that that come i think naturally from being displaced anywhere by war um but also just the the, the trauma of what other people put you through so I, I when i when i lived in kenya with one of the Stepmoms. Um, I just remember constant beatings, you know, and and these were not just sort of smack. They were proper beatings, and it was, but it wasn't her alone. I mean, there were also um, there were uh, in the house. There was two other men in the house. One was um, uh, there to fix some some cars and some buses, and so you know, if she didn't she didn't feel like beating us, she would get him to sort of do it for for her. And and you know, I remember canings that. Canings that would last for so long that I w- you would cry until you lost your voice and um, you know being locked in rooms without food for days and um, and having to eat leftovers and you know and also just just having nobody who sort of noticed when you you know when when things were really wrong I remember being once so sick and and just lying um, days on days on the bed. Um, um, you know, I think I was in, you know, six or seven years, I was so weak. I couldn't even get up to, you know, go to the bathroom and, you know, pee on myself and things like that. And and nobody even noticed that you were that sick, you know, but, but in a way, I think my mind sort of found a place to put them all. And it hasn't been, it genuinely, it hasn't been a challenge in terms of confronting those, 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 um, um, those traumas until very very recently um, and in fact I think I probably started speaking about them more publicly in the last few years because um, um, yeah a lot of the time I, I think there was a level of I, I don't know maybe a shame or, or feeling a sense of being damaged or, or things like that and so so I'm, I'm not, in a way I'm working through it I'm, I'm still working through it even as, as, I, as I speak to you and I think and I think, you know, I try to tell myself <laughs> that it's actually a, a lucky thing. Um, not, not, not that suffering is good or is necessary, but, but I have the opportunity to explore what healings can look like. And, and for a country and a people like, like my people, I suppose, like my mother, people would have gone through trauma all of their life and died with trauma. And they would have never had the opportunity to come to a country that afforded, afforded them, you know, such a, a long time of stability and comfort that you begin to feel safe enough to explore the parts of you that, that were broken and, and explore how they can heal. Because to me, in my experience, it almost feels as if sadly even the ability to, to have the opportunity to heal is is a luxury to some degree, um, and you don't get to do it if you still have to survive and still are in refugee camp and still have to mm-hmm. run from the enemy and all that, yeah.
1: It's an admirable um, sort of reconceptualizing of it. Uh, it uh, but the experience does remind me of uh, uh, Desmond Tutu's line about uh, the depths of apartheid, where he imagined whispering in uh, uh, God's ear, God, we know you're in charge. Why don't you make it slightly more obvious <laughs> you went you, you 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 endured so much through that period and then you had the the news that your your father had died in uh, 1996 um and he was he was killed uh, as i understand it um by another another faction within the sudan people's liberation army yes um, yes how did how did that uh how did that news reach you given that he hadn't really been in your life, for uh, for much of your childhood,
0: I remember uh, we were in Nairobi at the time, and I remember the, the, you know their stepmother coming in, and and she was um, she was crying so loudly and screaming and complete distraught, and I just wondered what had happened because I'd never seen her um in that state before and then then the next thing was all my dad pictures were being removed from the wall and within a few hours our house was crowded with people and so I think it was the second day or so where we were sat down and we we're told something along the line that your father is not coming back and to be honest it didn't really I didn't have an emotional register on how you're supposed to respond so I sort of I sort of did what everybody was doing which was crying um but you know yeah but i i didn't i didn't i didn't i knew it was a bad thing but i I didn't know what necessarily that that meant, but our life did change significantly after that, you know that's when we had to move back to the camp um because you know nobody could afford to um let us live in Nairobi, nobody could pay the school fees, oh. so um yeah, and so that's that's kind of became it things became really real really quickly um
1: and uh your your mum then came back into your into your life it must have been must have must have been a real joy to reunite with her i imagine
0: yeah i mean <laughs> and i think in a way i mean i laugh partly because maybe it's a, it's a form of coping with 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 the reality of what seems so unfamiliar but yeah Mom I remember when my mom turned up we were in a, in a about an hour away from Kakuma in a place called Lodua. and um you know she was wearing she was in all black um because um um when you are i think your husband died you were you were all black with no earrings or no decoration or things like that for a while, so she was really she looked like a ghost. she was so skinny and um um, but, you know, I remember her hugging me and uh, I ended up write, writing about it in a, in a piece um, um, that explore my mother, my grandmother and myself, sort of the, the sort of generational relationship and the impact of war on those relationships. And, and you know, I, I just stood there as if not knowing what was a proper way of responding to your crying mom. Cause she was on her knees and hugging me and, and just crying. And I just I just stood there like a tree trunk really, and I didn't know necessarily what what to do. And and then you know, typical I think in some ways, or maybe atypical. You know, I think soon after we ended up having a fight because um I was she was trying to get me to read and I, and I couldn't read properly. And she was always such a a committed person to education. You know, she thought education was going to get you out of this you know any situation. So she always wanted us to perform well academically.
1: How did your uh, mum come about to uh, to apply for refugee status to Australia? Because a, a lot of your um, siblings and half-siblings uh, moved to the United States. What made your mum choose Australia?
0: Uh, so my my mum brother had moved to the United States and he didn't really like the United States. He didn't think that it was a good place to raise family. Um so he was he was in a position to be able to sponsor us to go to the United States, but he then suggested that one of the other um sort of um uh, distant family members here sponsor us because he thought Australia was much better, so that's how we ended up um being sponsored to come to australia um and then uh so mom at that point when 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 my father died um I think it became obvious to my mom that was, nobody was going to look after me um, because I suppose that sort of the relationship that anchor why others looked after me was because it was under the umbrella that my father was that was responsible for the families. And so she came oh. looking for me um, and then she found that I was already doing well uh, in my studies in Kenya. So she decided then perhaps it was better to move the rest of the siblings, my um other siblings from Ethiopia to to Kenya instead of moving me because I think her initial plan was actually taking me back to Ethiopia and we were just going to live in Ethiopia. Um, but then she went and brought the rest of the family members and then we um, uh, went back to Kakuman from there. Uh, then applied for resettlement um, to Australia.
1: And when you uh, landed in in Melbourne, you're uh, eighteen years old, so I guess you'd have pretty vivid memories of it. Uh, uh, What were your first impressions of the
0: place? Um, I thought it was the most sort of beautiful, clean place I'd ever seen in my life. You know, I remember looking, I remember, you know, driving out of the, I'm um, Airport. But even even as the plane sort of descended and just seeing all these lights that um it felt as if the world had been turned upside down. It was just carpet of stars everywhere. And um you land at Melbourne Airport and I was just so excited to 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 finally be somewhere where I could my first goal was I was going to go to school and I was going to try and get to uni. And, you know, those, those were all the thoughts I had. I also thought I was going to have my own bedroom, but then I had to share with my siblings and all that. And, um, but yeah, but it was, you know, I had these very large expectations and dreams and hopes, and I thought everything was now going to be fine in a way. Um, and, and it was for a long time.
1: There's a lot of, conflict in, in refugee policy, but one of the interesting things that almost everyone seems to agree on is that Australia does refugee resettlement really well. Uh, but your experience wasn't perfect, I assume. Uh, how do you think uh, we can do refugee resettlement better? What was it about uh, your settling in or uh, your school experience where you thought perhaps that the system could have, could have responded better to someone of your talents?
0: Well, I don't know necessarily about someone of my talent. I think just just the fact that I think um sometimes in, in in response to refugees we can have sort of blanket policies about how how they will integrate. And I think people come people are refugees and they share similar experiences of displacement, but they also have, you know, different talents and different um skills. And so I think that part of the uh, p- part of part of the problem when we came here. I mean Initially, because we were sponsored by um, by a family member, it also meant that we didn't get a lot of help. But the, I think the assumption was that if you're sponsored by a family member, then they sort of take on the settlement process for you, with assistance of some oh. settlement processes. But you don't get the same one as if you were brought in on a government place, right? So that so I think okay yeah and i think that i think that made a huge difference for us because it, like within 2 weeks of arriving here we had to find our own home with very little help i you know, I, I literally went walked into a school to try and enroll myself without you know we had to find everything out for ourselves including where the local shopping center was and so i think that you know um perhaps like if that difference didn't exist we'd have got much more support um um in in place which we didn't because the other thing is as well even the person who sponsored us was in a way, new in the country themselves, so they really couldn't help us as much, and then, and then just the blank uh, policies that I came across. Um, an example was in there was this policy in my school that if you've been if you've not been here for more than seven, seven years, you couldn't do certain subjects. You know, you couldn't, I couldn't do English literature, for example, you know, there was an assumption that I had to do ESL. Well, actually there was an expectation that I will do ESL and I will sort of do all these other simpler subjects because I think in their mind, the assumption was that, you know, your education was disrupted. And so, but, but in fact, my education wasn't disrupted. You know, I was, I, 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 Went through primary school in a refugee camp, and I went through secondary school. So I was actually in school most of the time, and and as a result, as well, I, I went to a, a sc- I went through a schooling system that was predominantly or wholly in English because you know Kenya was colonized by the British, so the language of instruction is English. So, tr- sort of treating someone like that is, is similar to someone who say came from a, an Arabic speaking background, or you know, it's quite it's quite different, and I think. Teachers just did not have the the resources to be able to cater for those differences. It was easier to just put us in one class and and deal with us there. And I think that really, I, th- I think that really has a lot of impact. Because I I do have friends. I have a friend who ended up becoming a medical doctor and going to, you know, both Oxford and Harvard. And he was told he couldn't do math methods or couldn't do that. You know, I, I just have a friend who graduated uh, from Melbourne University in a master's of public health, was told the same. I have a friend who works um, as a pharmacist. She was told she couldn't do all these subjects, you know. And, and, and similarly, like, I don't think, you know, had I, I, I sort of accepted the standard that I think was being suggested to me I would have not felt confident enough to have um, applied to uni or to have applied to law school you know so so it's not only my experiences it's, it's it's the experiences of a large group of people and i think I think it comes from a good intention, a place of good intention wanting to help, but I think it misses the fact that even in in the similarities that we bring as as, as refugees. We are also different individuals, you know, and with different talents and different ability and, and deserve that in school, or deserve for that to be seen in school and our workplaces and the rest.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Did you experience much uh, racism in those those years?
0: Yeah, I did. Um, being called names, um, a lot of bullying that was sort of specific racist bullying. <laughs> um, um uh yeah and you know but also just gradually becoming aware of the kind of the political discourse as well and the media discourse about people who look like me and sort of you know uh, the narrative about the Sudanese gangs you know which were beginning to emerge as early as 2007 merely because Sudanese kids were hanging out in group which is a cultural thing more than a gang thing you know and so it, even if you go to Juba, you'll find people sitting under trees drinking tea or eating and just chatting in groups. It's But that was not something seen in, in the places I was living in. And so, yeah, I think it was it was it was beginning to I was beginning to realize that perhaps the vision I have, I had of, you know, this is home now and all that wasn't wasn't necessarily going to play out um in the way I I thought about it I, I thought it would um, so and I think the most the, the, some of the most significant event was was when you know this 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 young boy called called Leop, um who we used to play basketball together um in in Springvale um where when he was you know essentially bashed um to near death by two young men who were saying things like they want to take back you know that that towns that you know that that town is being turned into the Bronx, you know very much adopting the kind of language that was being used in the media about people who look like me and and so you know this this very talented young young boy um you know ended up on life support and his family had to turn off turn turn off his life support and i I think it was just it it, it was such a, a a difficult thing to accept that that it could happen here, and also then the then immigration minister, um then blaming the African communities for for his death and and saying that you know Australia was going to reduce the intake of Africans by a certain percentage because we were failing to integrate and it, um yeah it was it was beginning to, uh to feel a bit uh you will begin to feel different and then, uh, and then more and more conversation about an Australian-ness and this is an Australian and you're constantly thinking, are they talking about me? You know, because, you know, it, it, was, it was really, and, and I think it was also happening, all of that was also happening when you were sort of just trying to find a sense of self as a young person, you know, my late, yes. my, my late teens to my early 20s.
1: There was that famous moment in 2018 when then Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton said that because of African gang violence, Victorians were scared to go out in restaurants. Uh, you chose to take a quite a public stance and speak out. Uh, what made you step up?
0: I don't know, to to be honest. I think maybe, um, I think part of me was tired. I was just I, I was tired of hearing these stories about who we were supposed to be and 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 I knew all these members of my fa- of, of my community that were just working so hard, even as we speak now they' women who have you know left their families here in Melbourne to go and work two three jobs at Alice Spring to be able to provide for their kids, you know their young Sudanese kids. Working in McDonald's and working at Safeway, they are what we're now calling essential workers. They're, you know, young people just trying to do their best. And I think I just got frustrated with this was the single story that was being told about a whole group of us that were just trying to live the best life we can and and make something out of our new home. And it felt unfair that the conduct of a few um, a few but definitely you know a few that needed to be dealt with, but the conduct of a few was being used as the ground on which to um you know uh, uh, on which to paint um us as as not only incapable of of being citizens of this country but it, but that it was a mistake for us to have been um brought here in the first place and I think yeah I think there's a part of it that felt um yeah just enough and then they the other I think i, I I think at that time I'd had my first child um and I knew that the arguments I made for myself um or the doubts that I had about myself and my place were were going to be even far more difficult for her you know um she's born here she grows up here and you know um and I think for, for her and most of uh, uh, young black kids that grow up here uh, thinks themselves Australian and, until they discover uh, at some point in their life that they are also black and that means something. And I think, and I, I think I knew that my my daughter' future might be in this country, and and perhaps there, there was a sense of responsibility that y- you try and make it better um, for her in, in some ways, and and for the young people like them in some ways, um, so that by the time they grow up. There is a space for them in 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 um in uh, in this nation's um perception of who it who would think it is there's a space for them and, and a legitimate space for them to feel part of this country um and and um and be proud of it you know in in a true sense be proud to say i am australian and and for me i know i know you know um i know for example if my if my daughter grow up and you know she wants to represent australia it would seem so natural you know to me that that's what she wanted to do um so it felt as though um it was felt as though accepting that this is this is home for now and, and trying to participate in, in making it better but also trying to trying to st- to finally <laughs> perhaps in a way mature and and accept that belonging um is both a sense of being welcome and a self, and a sense of um and I want to use this word carefully claiming you know y- 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 waiting for someone like peter danton or the, the people that take that position or uh, for them to define a more inclusive australia I, I i think it's a waste of time and so it's more of um you got to you have to turn up and, and say to the like of of Dattons and people who think like it, I am equally as Australian as you are, equally um, entitled to a voice as you do, um, equally entitled to the benefit, but also conscious of the responsibilities that I own to that country. And I am no longer asking for your permission to participate in public debates. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. And um, yeah, your discussion about the the impact of having a child reminds me of... uh, Uh, a really fascinating passage in Nicole Hannah Jones's book The 1619 Project where she talks about that moment where so many African-American families feel they need to sit their child down and say uh, you live in a racist society and particularly the warnings uh, that African-American parents will give to their sons uh, about how to behave if they're stopped by the police. Uh, move slowly, make sure you show your hands at all to, at all times, don't suddenly reach for your mobile phone. Uh, conversations that they feel angry to have to have because they know that around the country white Americans are not having the same conversation with their children so yeah I think it's really interesting how the how that experience of your children shapes shapes the way in which you behave.
0: That is quite true and those comments makes me reflect about some of the conversations I've also had like I mean I've told my brothers not to wear hoodies I've I've, I've told them even in the midst of the African gang narrative not to walk in groups because they are Really tall, dark guys, and 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 um, and because I'm afraid of what people are going to think, and because at that time there were neo-Nazi groups that were threatening to walk around, you know, um, hunting down people of of of, of these African gangs, and, and which was a very broad definition of what um, um, uh, who, who falls into that category. And then and and then that was not to me a fanciful fear because. Lip, you know, was a boy that was picked out by two young men looking for a black man to to kill. That black man could have been any of my brothers, could have been any black man on that day or black whatever on that day walking on those streets. So there there was that fear and that conversation that you have, and I'm I'm having you know those conversations with my daughter. She's not even five. You know, she came she came to me. The other day, um, a few months ago, and she kept having this conversation, and you know, I want to have a party for, you know, for for brown people, and I said, why would you want to have a party for brown people? What if your other friends want to attend? Um, and and she won't tell me that she just said I just want a party for brown people. So eventually, she came to me one uh, Saturday morning and said, Mom, at childcare, they're going to have a, a party, and only white people are invited. And so it made me realize that's why she wants a brown party because she was already you know, and I didn't know how to have that conversation with her. I still don't know how to have that conversation with with, with her. So um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a different reality. Um, to to face.
1: Yes, children's conception of race is so fascinating. Uh, we spent a month in America in 2008 uh, just as our y- um, eldest son was one year old um, and uh, after we'd been there a few weeks he began every time he saw an African-American man on the street to say Obama, Obama um, which I guess was a good thing but uh, but I'm not really quite sure. Uh, but I, I want to go to uh, to some of the uh, sort of positives and negatives of you speaking out. Um, your the law firm that you currently work at, Arnold Block Libel, I understand was was terrifically supportive, and then on the flip side, you had the uh, hate that uh, that poured out through social media. Um, tell us about those two sides of of, of of what you experienced.
0: Yeah, I I was I'm I'm quite aware I think, and I, even looking back right now, I'm quite aware of how much. I think perhaps courage and block, level had to allow, even when I left the fir- the firm early last year, um um, to to uh, I was still a junior lawyer and and to have to allow someone who's relatively junior to have such a, a public voice because I think inherently that comes with risks and and you know, understandably businesses don't want to risk, um their reputation and stuff but there were quite there were they were quite um i i never was sat down and told you couldn't say this or you couldn't say that or this would be problematic i i i said what i needed to say as as honestly as 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 i felt needed to be said and and i and i knew my job wasn't uh, threatened which i think it's a very big thing <laughs> Uh, especially if you come to this country with no money whatsoever, <laughs> with no with no coin to your name, and you're trying to literally what you work for every month is is everything you have, and so you know it was it was it was good to have that, and I think even when the abuse became too much and there were times even people would, would would try call through work they they put in systems in place to 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 protect me you know systems like not 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 having phones directly come to me um and someone having them vetted and and they didn't have to do that so i think that you know i i i'm i'm quite aware that if it wasn't for the support that i had at Anna Block that i would have never been able to do the sort of uh, public advocacy that i did because I, I, um uh, much of it, you know, easily nine nine percent of it is unpaid, you know, and and there were times when, in fact, I I took out my own personal leaves and and things like that to go and do and and do this this work because it felt important or you felt compelled to do it so. Um, I'm always grateful for that, and I'm always grateful for the fact that I was, you know, um, I, I didn't have that additional pressure that I was going to lose lose my job, and I didn't have the pressure to to change who I was or what I stood for, um, and to try to become somebody I, I wasn't. And I think that was it was it's such a, a safe space to learn and to challenge things. Um, so that that was one, and and so and and I think you know it, the 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 sort of like the the sort of. Um, trolling and abuse and all that. I've kind of got to a point where most of the time I really don't care anymore. I I try to block them as as fast as I can. I try not to engage. Sometimes you know I fall over myself and I and I do engage, which is which is always a bad thing I'm coming to find out. But I think the more the more I've been in, in 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 what is or this public space or commenting or having what people will call a profile um the more I think you realize that um um anything you say has the potential to offend somebody. Yes. You know? So I, I try to engage with things as honestly as I can. I try to understand or, or read up on things or try and, and not speak about things I don't know. But that will never protect you from um someone who wants to take an issue. And so the the choices really in the end um is is whether you take the positive and 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 the negative of of being in a public space to whatever degree or whether you whether you you step away and and um and and those those two options are things that almost every time something at least that seems major in my life happen i i think i reevaluate is it time to step away is it time to step back is it time to you know, do you keep going? Um, um, is it even useful anymore? Um, what is the the personal cost in terms of your ability to be present for your own kids and for yourself? What else are you sacrificing by being in this in these spaces? How how sustainable is it? Like, these these are ongoing conversations. Uh, particularly because I think most of the um pa- those public pap- roles are things that I'm not doing in a formal role, so it's not like I'm a presenter for a show or I'm an MP. You know, it's 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 a weird space because I those are things I do in my addition to my to my um, work. I hope that makes sense. So yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, you're uh, going to be stepping uh, at the end of January into uh, a role as the uh, director of the Sir Zelman Cowan Centre at Victoria University. Uh, what do you want to do in that role?
0: Well, in, in a way, the, the this, this, this specialisation of the centre um, is is around the issue of law and cultural diversity and, and the core, the core idea is to be able to be Connect community to the law, but also connect the law to communities and so running projects and programs or research that that supports that um in a way, I sort of maybe look at it as uh, as as another another way of 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 giving Australian multiculturalism meaning you know uh by providing uh, uh, um community members uh, 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 knowledge about the law because I think law is such a huge part of integrating into a society. Uh, but can be one of the most complex systems to navigate and to understand. Um, so, yeah, I think, that, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the centre can continue to do that work in terms of delivering projects um, for communities, um, working in collaboration with the with the legal sector, the courts, um, the tribunals and um, lawyers and others to um see how they can bring their skills or learn more about the communities that they work with and and also supporting research in this space um yeah, about what legally australia can look like as a as a multicultural society and what are the emerging questions and issues that we need to address as a country that that grows more and more and more diverse with time um um I, it's definitely a step up for me in, a, in a, it's um and uh, uh I I am excited, but I'm but I'm also um uh, cautiously um, uh, <laughs> I'm also a bit scared because I'm 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 hoping that um I do a good job of it.
1: Final questions, Nidal. What advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Oh yes, yes. I would. It's uh, an advice that uh, my my sister my late sister gave gave me. Um, be kind to yourself. Um, or as I read more recently from John O'Donnell, be excessively kind with yourself. Um, I think think that would be the advice. I think I, I try to push myself really hard, and I try to uh, get things done to the best standard that I that I can. And you know, um, and and um, yeah, I think being being kind to yourself is as important as as how hard you you try and push yourself and those things that you're passionate or care about.
1: What's something you used to believe? but no longer do?
0: I think in my younger years, um, I used to believe that uh, there was a a, a sort of a nice, neat answer to everything. And that I suppose moral choices were very clear. (laughs) And I think the more uh, I suppose I grow up and the more um, I I face life and sometimes life failures in 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 their different ways, you know, for example, um, you know, um, going through going through a, a divorce and becoming a single mom of two kids, and um, and and all the cultural uh, issues that that raise at different levels for myself for my family, um, you know, and and sort of the ways that you fail that makes you realize that life is far, particularly when it matters, it's far far more complex, and and sometimes and sometimes there is there is no answer. Um. Uh, except learning how to to balance, you know, the gray, the the uh, the ugly, messy gray, and and also perhaps understanding that, as from a distance, as frightening as that might sound, that there is also, I suppose, plenty of of joy and peace in it, you know. The struggle of not trying to find a precise way to solve a problem, or the precise, you know, moral stand you're supposed to take on this thing, and yeah. So I'm I'm hoping that I I get to um to learn more of, of that uh, of life, um and and embrace both the difficulties and and the challenge. And I think the other the other one, the other one I, I sort of learn um is that um. Until we're sort of dead, you know, life doesn't give any of us a break merely because we've suffered before. You know, I I remember carrying this tremendous anger, you know, just all-consuming anger when I when of the news, you know, in, in a selfish, in a very selfish way, when when the news of my sister came that she'd she died in a car accident. I just remember thinking, asking, like, what else does God want? You know, like uh You've been through a refugee camp, you've s- suffered your share of suffering, and then this, you know, it's like, what more do you really want? And I think part of the reason why I had so much anger was that I had created an unrealistic uh, but comfortable dream that because of what I had gone through, that somehow I was going to be cut kind a of slack by life, you know, at some point. But it, 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 it won't, you know, that there are the future is still as uncertain and is full of potentials of beauty and ugly and pain for me as for anybody else and i you know so i think yeah sort of um uh not being okay with it but at least accepting that reality of of what you can't control and yeah I, I don't know if that makes sense but yeah <laughs> that's, that's
1: certainly does certainly does when are you most happy reading Fiction or non-fiction?
0: I don't read a lot of fiction. I prefer um, Um, non-fiction. What are you reading at the moment? um, I'm reading Status Game. Um, I've just finished a book called Where Reason Ends, which is really interesting and captivating, but I could not pin down why. Perhaps it was because it just felt as though it took you on a journey that y- you just didn't know how it was going to end, and so you kept reading to find out how it ends, and then you never really find out how it ends, you know. Um, so yeah, I just completed reading that, and I'm also reading. Um, I think it's called it's Michael Lewis, and he's um he he the pandemic.
1: Ah yes, fifth fifth risk.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then I always have just on the side of my bed, um, Seneca letters that I've always find, Um Sometimes can be a good way of of starting your morning instead of reaching for your phone.
1: What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: Um, exercising. I try to um, at least do a run or um, a hike. I like really long walks, so if I did half the time I probably will do maybe an average about one hour or two hours walk a day. Um, I'm trying to commit now to running at least 10 Ks every week. Um, um, And that's, um, that's because I just realized sometimes I sort of overdo things. I used to sort of try to run um, a lot and I was getting more uh, kind of sick instead of feeling better because I think I was sort of over exercising, but I think exercising and going for runs or going for walks or being in nature um, I, it's, I always find that I, I relax my kids and I got an opportunity recently through a friend to go to, um, you know, Sandy Point, this beautiful part of, 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 of Victoria and we we're just in the water for days. So it was really good. It's just really, really good. So yeah, that's, that's, that's good for me.
1: Do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: Yes, I do. Um... My guilty pleasure I'm so
1: pleased to hear it.
0: Yeah, my guilty pleasure is fashion. So <laughs> I like I like how uh, I like yeah, I just like looking at really good I like looking at good clothes and good shoes and yeah, so that's my guilty pleasure. Yeah.
1: Do you have favorite
0: designers? No, I don't because all my favorite designers I can't afford them. <laughs> 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 so so I can admire them from far. <laughs>
1: Who do you who, who's who do you like admiring, or what, what styles uh, do you like admiring the most?
0: In terms of fashion, I would say um, a bit of like I think the more affordable range, or at least affordable, like Karen Karen Milan, I think, um, um, and that's the one I sort of go to most of the time. Um, but yeah, and but I will just crawl. I will just sometimes when I feel that my brain is not capable of reading paying attention or too tired to go for a walk and I know that social media and Twitter is probably not the right place I'll just scroll and look at really you know different how people put together their different outfits and then it gives you an idea about as you know like I say I can't afford my favorite designer so it gives you an idea of where to get cheaper alternatives to put it together yes, yes. So, so I, so that's how I spend some of my time <laughs>
1: Finally, Naidul, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Um, I think, in terms of um, uh, literature, I'd have to say probably James Baldwin. I think he has a, such a, a, a unique way of of getting to the heart of uh, of this, the issues of race and and how they influence our societies. I have just started. I mean, I used to watch all of us sort of know about Martin Luther King and I used to watch videos of him on YouTube. But I've started reading some of his work and it's 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 astonishing how modern and relevant they they were. And when I was preparing for my um press club speech, I, I actually read his book Chaos or Community. And and it was it was mm. it, it was comforting in in the way that it gives you this um, answers and a way of thinking about, you know, uh, and life and those deeper questions, right? So, uh, you know, there's, there's a part of it that talks about Black Power Movement and, and how that sort of made me sort of um, review some of the sharper edges of my own views about race and, and race relation and, and why, you know, in the way we communicate about that, even towards people, that might not have the best intention for us, must still have a sense of humanity in it and, and how hard that is to do. You know, there's a part in my, in my, in my press club speech that I come to that I, that I talk about, I suppose, the economic issues and, and how they influence perceptions of migrants and, and all that. And, and I have to say, that's a place that I felt I had to really work to get to um, emotionally because until that point, I'd always dismiss people like that is just racist that I don't want to engage with. But then actually taking a step back and thinking, well, even if I accept that they're racist and that people I really don't like, whichever world you envision as a progressive or whatever person you are, must include people like that, will include people like that. So you have to have a vision and, and an approach that somehow maintains their dignity in that world, you know, because it's there is unless you're going to engage in a a process of some sort of genocide, of mass displacement, we have to live with each other, whether I I like you or I hate you. And I have to find a way of, 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 you know, for myself, at least I have to find a way of, of living with those people and in these spaces and in restaurants or wherever and trying to find a way of valuing their humanity as well. And I think that's a really... I found that that's a really hard position to maintain, especially in social media spaces, because we are being and and I think maybe in my earlier advocacy, I I played into that role. We're being constantly asked to take positions. You must, you know, take a position, um, even if that position uh, lacks the necessary nuance to take us as far as we want to go.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the lovely things about Baldwin too is that he is not only writing about the African American experience but also about the gay experience in the 1950s and 1960s at a time when people like Malcolm X um, I'm are not particularly tolerant of uh, of, of, of uh, gay and lesbian people in society. Uh, so Baldwin's ability to to grab both of those issues at the same time, uh, I find
0: really fascinating. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, and he. It's a really, really. Have you have you um, you know, if you uh, uh if you watch the documentary called I Am Not Your Negro, um, which is which actually there is this part where Baldwin mourns for Malcolm X. You know, um, and I and 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 also in his in his um in his essays, there's an essay he writes called "Smaller Than Life." And um, it's a reflection. It's it's basically a, a review of a biography of, of Douglas Frederick, and and he talks about this last paragraph about. You know the, the 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 mistake in his view that the biographer did was to you know to sanctify and to make a saint of of Frederick Douglass and the idea that human relations of 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 all nature requires a level of honesty and an insight you know and and I think that was quite fascinating because you know you 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 interact with those perceptions at least in my experience even modern in currently where you know people people think that they can't criticize. Um, or, or, or I can, or we can criticize or have internal criticism of our own cultural practices because, you know, we're already in the minority, but that doesn't exempt us from human error. You know, I, I I can experience racism at a time, but I can also use my agency, um, to harm somebody else and to, to, to 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 fail as a human being it, it i'm not confined to a particular thing because i happen to be a minority and experience you know um disadvantage or discrimination and so i think that was fascinating to me because that's actually what it means to afford someone their whole humanity you know not not the successful immigrant or the failing immigrant but the broad spectrum of experiences that come uh being a human being
1: absolutely uh, Nadal Nyon, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on The Good Life podcast.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for
1: listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this week's conversation, I reckon you'll love past episodes with Linda Burney, Tim Pomasan, and Jihad Dibb. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell one of your friends or put a comment on social media. really helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.